1: This is Front Row, and I'm your host, James Whiteside, principal dancer and choreographer with American Ballet Theatre and the author of Center, Center. Take a seat in the Front Row as I discuss the creative process and the business of creativity with the world's brightest stars. Jim Lewigs is a playwright, librettist, and lyricist, as well as an adjunct professor at NYU Tisch, teaching design for stage and film. He was commissioned by Seattle Opera to write the book and lyrics for Das Barbecue, a musical, which has since received more than 200 productions worldwide. He enjoyed a decades-long collaboration with singer Barbara Cook, with whom he developed cabaret as well as concert appearances at the Lincoln Center, on Broadway, and in London's West End. For Walt Disney theatrical productions, he adapted the animated feature film Aladdin for the stage. In addition to his work in the theater, Jim owns and manages an interior design business His work as a designer has been published internationally in Architectural Digest, Interior Design, British House and Garden, and El Decor, among others. In this episode of Front Row, we find out from Jim Lewig's what it means to stumble into a career in design and how that business is structured. We also learn about Jim's work in theater with Disney and the late musical theater star Barbara Cook. Jim Lewigs is a creative force that brings humor, wisdom, and beauty to all he does. And just wait till you hear his soothing baritone on this episode of Front Row. Jim Lewigs, welcome to Front Row. Thank you. Delighted to be in the Front Row. It's the only place to watch art. (laughs) Exactly. So I'd like to start with design, you've built a career in design without formal study. Can you tell me about your first big project, the airplane hangar meets office in Texas, which was prominently featured in Architectural Digest? Why design, and why were you so sure you could
2: do it? I wasn't sure at all. My dad asked me to do it. Uh, I was up here doing my life as a writer, working uh, writing concert and cabaret acts and he retired to the hill country of Texas and. He was a collector of vintage American aircraft and needed a place to store them and an office. So he built this hangar and then panicked because he really wasn't sure what was going on. So I uh, was invited to come down and that's what I did. I moved down there for a year. I ended up employing about 80 craftspeople. Wow. (laughs) And we, we uh, built this thing and then it got published by architectural digest and interior design and, and suddenly the phone started ringing for design. And that's how that happened. That is a wild story. So what was it like returning to Texas after, you know, being free from your hometown right. in New York City? Well, the politics didn't feel as frightening then as they uh, mm. do nowadays. Um, and we were li- he lived outside of San Antonio in a beautiful part of Texas called the Hill Country. It's really a, a lot like anywhere around the Mediterranean. Um, same vegetation, limestone hills, lots of lakes and rivers. So it didn't feel like tumbleweed and Republican politics. (laughs) (laughs) So what sort
1: of materials did you use for that project and why?
2: Yeah, well, it was an architectural uh, building that was adapted as a hangar Mm. and an office. So it was a steel construction and uh, even had corrugated metal on the outside of it. So when you drove by... Um, it looked like a big barn in a cow pasture. It did not scream <laughs> LaGuardia. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah, the neighbors would have been less pleased, I think.
1: <laughs> As an adjunct professor of design for stage and film at NYU Tisch, what
2: is the hardest thing to get your students to understand about design? That it comes from them, that they're enough, um, that their lived experience and their taste and their storytelling sense and their emotions are the way in and, you know, finding ways, a personal process for externalizing all of that is what we hope to teach them and they can do it. And so what do they teach you then? Oof, they teach me everything. They teach me to believe all the things I just, uh, that I tell them to <laughs> to, <laughs> to practice. It's a good They've cycle. they taught me the difference between yeah, they've taught me the difference between talent and technique. Imagine—I imagine—you could speak about that for uh, days and days. Yeah, th- it's a—it's quite a sandwich indeed. You need them both. You need them both. Mm-hmm. So they come in with their talents, and we try to magnify and extend those talents through teaching them techniques that they can use as part of their personal process for storytelling. Mm.
1: Continuing on design, do you have any projects that you're currently working on that you're
2: excited about? Well, I'm in the running to get one right now. I might even hear back today, um, which will be a residential project here in Manhattan combining two apartments. Mm. Um, it's a it's a dream gig, but uh, I, I lose more clients than I get because I tell them the truth up front. <laughs> I tell them It'll cost twice as much as your worst nightmare and take twice as long as your worst nightmare. And then they happily totter off down the hall and hire someone who lies to them. So it's fine by me. You're doing the right thing. You really are. You have to. Mm -hmm. So uh,
1: we spoke about materials a little bit earlier, but uh, what are your favorite materials to design with? What do you have, have thematically throughout your work as a
2: designer? I think probably my most favorite of all is stone. Yeah, and even more favorite than stone, maybe terrazzo, man-made stone. Mm. So, you know, I I tell my students this: there's wood, there's glass, there's metal, there's stone, and that's what we got. I don't do sheet rock if I can avoid it, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, you know, leaving aside paint, plaster, and all that. Those are the those are the sort of that's the hierarchy, and stone is the oldest and most beautiful of all to me. So, uh, I love to use stone.
1: I think it sounds just it's also fine. Very expensive James. Of course, of course. Beauty is expensive. Yeah. So to create your own business in a field you didn't realize that you were perhaps going to be a part of, how did you transition your innate gift for design into a business?
2: Yeah. Well, I think trial and error, um, on the on building up my own technique and on on the business, it's all it all comes from referrals. So I'm hopeless at uh, going out and trying to find business. Mm. Um, but I haven't had to, luckily. So I'm very careful on who I take in. And then I'm slowly learning how to how to charge properly. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? But it's, a, it's a beautiful little business.
1: And it's just me. Just charge as it's far just as me. what the client is paying you?
2: That kind of charge? Yeah. Well, you know, but there is a tradition in interior design that that say I go buy you a refrigerator and then I put a percentage on top of that and I charge you that price, mm. which seems psycho to me. I'm, i hope I hope no interior designers listening, <laughs> but there are all all sorts of ways to lose the confidence of the, uh, of the client, in my opinion. Mm. Do you know, because they, why would I, why would they buy a hundred thousand dollar rug when there's a $6,000 rug and, and knowing that I would get a markup on that. Yeah. Right. So, I just charge them a flat fee for my service based on time. I charge them by the quarter of the year I work for them. Mm-hmm. And then they know what I'm going to charge and what they're going to have to pay. So there's, because there's all sorts of ways to cheat. And I, I don't like having any of that in the in the room with me with them.
1: Yeah, in the karmic atmosphere.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it just upsets people. You know, getting slammed with bills that you weren't expecting. Yes, of course. Of course. I, it's not my favorite thing in the world. So. no. How did you come
1: up with this method of payment and structure for your business?
2: Well, I listened to all the experts and then did it my way. You know, I was told, you know, exactly how to do it. I was told by some really nefarious people exactly how to rip everybody off, which I just thought was terrifying. Um, But there are ways, you know. So I thought, well, let's just let's just uh, let these clients, these wonderful people who want someone to come in and transform their lives for them. Let's inspire confidence in them and tell them what it's going to cost. Mm. Not necessarily how long it's going to take, but how much it'll cost and what they can prepare for. And then they can decide because, you know, they're very vulnerable. Absolutely. I mean, I mean when have you, you open... ever used an interior design?
1: Huh? Oh, absolutely. You not. haven't? Used... No. I, no. That is above my pay grade currently. Unfortunately, it yeah. is aspirational to be able to afford a designer Um but, you know, I'll get there.
2: Yeah. And, but you know what? You're a visual artist as well, so you're going to do it your own way. Your environment will be come from you. Yeah. I think. But if you need any help, I'll be right over. Well, I'm going to take you up on that. I hope you don't rip me off. <laughs> <laughs> I came into all that from the negative end, didn't I? All right. Well, we're we'll fix that in post. <laughs> so uh, as a Texan... How did your upbringing influence your eye for design? Well, you know, it's hard because there's so much garbagey design out there (laughs) in America. So (laughs) the truth of the matter is you can make a lot of mistakes keeping your eyes open in the United States. So I took myself off to Italy. (laughs) (laughs) Great. And I started keeping my eyes open in Italy, hence the stone, right? Yeah. And thinking about Form as function, materials as function, scale as function. So it's exciting for me. You know, for example, I got a beautiful job to to, do a home in Washington. And, of course, I knew I was going to blank on everybody's names. But he'll come to me, a very important American architect who works in a uh, modernist uh, vernacular. And I got the commission, had no business getting that commission, but thrilled to get it. So I quickly took myself off to Scandinavia and started uh, talking to dealers there, looking at scale, trying to figure out you know where those room sizes came from, mm-hmm. and what materials could create them and wh- how light functions in those spaces and and then what things to buy that wouldn't look absurd. <laughs> Do you know because you you can't go to a restoration hardware and buy a seventy foot long sofa and put it in every living room, you know yeah, every living cool. room that's the operative phrase. Exactly. And Texas is full of those enormous scales, Yeah, which can be beautiful outside, I think, but inside a little daunting. (laughs) I don't know. It sounds pretty sweet to me. (laughs) Well, scale is good in some
1: places. Okay. I'd like to transition here to talk about Jim Lewig's The Playwright, Librettist, and Lyricist. Das Barbecue, your first musical, which premiered in 1991, has been revived many times and as recently as 2020, right before the COVID-19 lockdown. It's a country-western retelling of Wagner's Ring Cycle, or Wagner, as you would probably say. I would say Wagner. (laughs) Set in Texas. What drew you to the epic Ring Cycle, and how did you find your way to a Texan retelling?
2: Yeah, well, that was crazy. There was a wonderful impresario at Seattle Opera. He's still with us, but he's no longer running the opera out there. Um, Spate Jenkins. And he had a very important ring cycle that people were coming from all over the world for. I'm going to try to do this quickly. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, they come in for four days. It's a tetralogy. James, look that up. and (laughs) You're going to have to define that for me. You know I don't know what that is. (laughs) Four operas. Okay. So... And obviously the singers can't sing every night, even if they're cast in everything, which none of them are. Um, but so there's a week, you come in for a week and you're sitting around Seattle and you're going to see the opera on four nights. What are you going to do on the others? So Spate you know, would offer them entertainments on the off nights. Hmm. And there was a one woman show about Cosima Wagner, which was not packing them in, shall we say. <laughs> so he decided he would do something with music And called up Scott Warrender, who was a Seattle native and a very wonderful composer-lyricist, and said, Scott, help, let's do a musical. So Scott called me, and I had to audition. And then, because it was Wagner, Scott was terrified about writing a single note of music. So he said, let's make it country and western, and then they can't compare me to Wagner at all. Smart. And I thought, well, I could do Texas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, smart, right? Mm -hmm. So then I thought, well, I would be able to do Texas. And then I read the tetralogy and had a nervous breakdown and thought, oh my God, 21 hours of operas. And they told us we had to do it in 90 minutes with five actors. So that got me to thinking um, and panicking, but I had cashed the uh, commission check the first half of it. As soon as I got back to New York, of course, cause I needed it. And uh, then I thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then I realized it was about two families and i found my way into the story made it mine wrote that sucker and <laughs> i think we've had 250 productions of it or something unbelievable
1: yeah, yeah i in doing my research here um i saw all sorts of wonderful little tidbits about dos barbecue it was
2: really nice to see it was lovely to do it was a great great time in my life and we got to take it all over the country and uh You know, we had some amazing people involved. Carol Lee Carmelo is now a star and J.K. Simmons won the Oscar. And uh, so it was a wonderful group that we ended up with in New York. Wow. How did reviews of that work specifically uh, affect your career early on? Well, they were very strong early on for that project. And I think Variety wrote a huge rave of it when we were out in Seattle in a tiny little theater at Seattle Rep. And that got some New York interest. And then we got a production at the Goodspeed Opera House in Connecticut, mm-hmm. and um, of some really important New York producers came up to see it up there. And I, of course, threw a huge barbecue for them afterwards, and we got the cast to entertain them further, seduced them. They signed away, and and we found ourselves off Broadway. Brilliant.
1: I mean, <laughs> seduction works, believe it or not. Seduction
2: works in the arts. <laughs> You've never been sent out to seduce any patrons, have you? Oh, of course not. <laughs> So, uh, you were the
1: librettist and the lyricist for Das mm-hmm. Barbecue, and I was. Scott Warrender is the composer. How right. do you work with a composer? And uh, like, what's the first step of developing the book and the lyrics? It's it's so foreign to me.
2: Yeah, it's it's different for every team. For us, because I was doing all the words, it would usually the burden of it would fall to me to um, crack you know, a story to, to figure out, you know, a, a three-part structure and, and then begin to s- start generating some language. Das Barbecue was tough because I wasn't sure how to do it. So I started writing that one as a short story hmm. and um, just to jumpstart myself. And I got half a chapter in and the whole thing fell into my head and I, you know, then I started writing it in dialogue form. But you just have to crack it. But I worked first and Scott followed. And, you know, a gifted composer can set a lyric very quickly. In other words, you just sort of prime their pump. But usually they find the rhythm and off they go. And then they, you know, improvise on the melody and the accompaniment. And then they get it. Left hand, right hand. And it's usually born pretty quickly. It's a thrilling process. So you write the lyrics before they compose the music? Yeah. Well, I have, a, I have a dummy melody in my head. So I'm not writing a poem. It's definitely a song that I could sing to you, but um, you don't want to hear my music. Um, But it's an organizing principle, you know? Yeah. And then the composer obviously writes much better music, so off they go. Once or twice uh, I've been asked, what what the hell do you hear? Because I can't figure out how you're organizing this. And then I sing it to them, and then they understand the scansion better, and then off they go. Have any of your other your melodies that you've come up with originally made their way into the actual piece. Yes. One of them in one of them intact, but I'm not allowed to say which I was sworn to secret. secret. Oh, I love a secret though. Yeah, it was great. (laughs) And it was wonderful. It felt, you know, the, the song fell into my head entirely Mm. and it was good. And uh, so they used it. (laughs) Well, don't you wish
1: you could uh, speak of it? Don't you wish? No, I can't do it. Right. Can't do it. Well, I, I give you accolades for, for this piece of work, <laughs> you know, even if you're not able to get them, I'll play it for you at the beach. Perfect. Uh, so, you know, in creating, uh, what's it like to work with artists on a new production and how do you coax out their inner genius?
2: Well, that's, you know, that's the dream, the gift. I mean, first of all, a commission's a gift, right? Mm. A commission gets you going. Um, but the joy is being in the rehearsal room and and uh trusting that it will happen that it will arrive um tons of work prior to the rehearsal room, of course, yeah, but do you know everyone I think when the baby's born, you know these the when the epiphanies happen, and if they're palpable to the team, you know you're you know you're all trying to catch the same kid, basically you <laughs> know so <laughs> so. It's it's thrilling. I mean, it's what you get to do. I mean, you're in company every day, right? You're among your yeah. your dancers and with your family of artists and it's buoying and refreshing and and then of course what I do is I begin to tailor make it to the uh, cast. So I watch rehearsals, um I think it drives a lot of directors crazy. I like to be in rehearsals not to watch what the director's doing, but to begin to suss out the the, com- the comedic rhythms of the actors or just their natural speech patterns. Yeah. So that if a joke isn't landing, you go, oh, she'll accent this, or this vowel is funny coming out of her mouth, or this would be good with her timing. And you tailor it on, you sort of shrink wrap it on them. I mean, that is exactly the same
1: for creating dance or even inhabiting roles within dance. Um, it's very, very common for coaches, directors, choreographers to change very established pieces of choreography to better suit a certain dancer. And I've been the beneficiary of that so many times over, just making sure that everything looks as good as it possibly can and the emotions are
2: coming through. Well, yeah. So good for them. Do you know why crucify someone on a piece of choreography when it can come out of their body um, in a better way? So, yeah, it's all about setting up that... Eternal now. Yeah. So that when the curtain goes up, they're ready. There
1: are some pieces of choreography that are so heavily guarded that there's not room for the shrink wrap. Um, right. and, and that can be pretty difficult because while the choreography is an obvious win, uh, the dancers might not be
2: able to sell it. <laughs> right. And I'm sure there's always that person out there counting those 36 turns. <laughs> oh always always just
1: <laughs> desperate for failure. <laughs> so uh as a playwright and a librettist and uh lyricist is there any project you wish you could get your hands on? Is there a musical comedy you'd like to adapt, write, whatever?
2: Ooh. Would well, you know I The thing is I really should get wise and admit that I'm better at adapting than generating my own stories. I mean, I would say that things that I've adapted, but they're usually commissions have all been produced, Hmm. but getting on, you know, it's, it's hard to originate a general, it's hard to create an original story out of your lived experience and psyche that hasn't already been explored. Hmm. And um, adaptations the property, you know, is appealing first and then you bring yourself to bear within it. So I don't, I am currently trying to figure out Rumpelstiltskin quite seriously. Huh. So that's the one that's, that's the bee in my bonnet right now. <laughs> what is that crazy little story about? I, it's so upsetting to me. I remember as a child being devastated by that story hmm. and I still can't figure out why it's so upsetting. And it's so crazy. Wait, can you but tell I it? it I don't something. remember. Well, do you know, there's this young woman who has an ambitious father. So he tells the king she can spin straw into gold okay but she, of course she can't do that so the king comes for her and locks her up in a room with a bunch of straw and a spinning wheel and says turn it into gold by tomorrow or i'm going to cut your head off casual <laughs> yeah, casual so in comes this what, what's the correct word i believe we're allowed to say dwarf because dwarfism yes so a very small person comes in in a stocking cap and striped stockings and she... And he says, okay. he says, okay, Cookie, I can spin that straw into gold for you. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to give me your firstborn child. So he's already ahead of the game. Okay. So he spins that room up, and then he spins up another room, and the king promptly marries her. And she has the baby, and he comes back for the baby, and she doesn't go through with the bargain. She withholds the child. And then why? And he's enraged. And then he says, if you can guess my name, um, now wait a minute, how does this go? Yeah, she has to guess his name in order for him not to take the child. And his name is Rumpelstiltskin, so he's thinking she's never going to guess it. But he's out in the woods dancing around singing his name, and she overhears it. So he loses. He doesn't get the kid. He doesn't get any money for all the gold he made. And at the end, he stamps himself through the floor and is gone forever. So I'm like, who's this helping this story? <laughs> Where's the lesson? Uh, Where's the lesson? I think it might be an allegory about artists. Let's be careful. Or is it about
1: vanity? You know, singing
2: your own no. name in a forest is rather peculiar. Well, he was so gleeful that he was going to get that baby, you see, that he was happily dancing around in the forest. Huh. But he didn't get the kid. Well, you got a- I have a confession. I had a horrible nickname
1: in high school. And it was Rumple Pimple Skin.
2: Oh, my God. Well, see, this is this is very apropos. <laughs> Thankfully,
1: my skin has since cleared up. And uh, I have gotten over said trauma. And you've never read that story? I mean, I did, but I, I didn't think much of it. And I've forgotten it. I read it as a child and never thought about it again. It didn't haunt me the way it does you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it's a musical, but I'm I'm, I'm cooking on it. I'm cooking on it.
1: Well, if you need um, access to the name Rumpel Pimple Skin, I freely give.
2: <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Oh, wow. I'll well. take it. Of course, it's going to be too short to be a whole evening, but I'll figure something out. And we can't do Into the Woods. Did you see Into the Woods? No, I didn't. The revival? No. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Speaking of adaptation,
1: wait, before I get into that, actually, you were saying that uh, it's hard to draw from meaningful, original content from within yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then you went on to say, I'm better at adaptation, which is already existing material. I
2: find that a little, uh, you know, it doesn't quite match up. I mean, here's what I'm, I'm just trying to be a little bit careful. As a white, gay, male, American writer, and, you know, writers mostly work out of lived experience. Uh Uh-huh a lot of, shall we say, catastrophically brilliant white male writers have written their stories. Yeah. And we've been hurt. Um, this is dangerous to talk about, but it's also the truth, I think. It's time for new voices, um, new original voices mm-hmm. that that are uh, creating art from their own lived experiences. And um, the stages need to be open to all those voices. And so it's not so surprising that you know, my family play is n- after Tennessee Williams' family play, or Eugene O'Neill's family play, or or August Wilson's family play is is not going to be as uh, I think compelling at the m- in the current climate. Yeah, doesn't mean I don't keep writing them, and I keep you know writing my own original stories, which I love and which I need to do, and and I'm uh, thrilled to do. But the adaptation work seems to get produced.
1: All right, I hear that. And speaking of adaptations, I found this information fascinating and I had no idea this was something you had done. You adapted Disney's Aladdin for the theater. What were some mm-hmm. challenges in taking an animated musical to the stage?
2: Well, yeah, that's a great question. You really have done your research. I'm so impressed. <laughs> um that was a uh, <laughs> that was Disney theatrical. Um uh I had done about 20 titles for a publishing company called Music Theater International. If Samuel French isn't licensing a musical, it's probably being licensed by Music Theater International and where the Rodgers and Hammerstein um, company. So MTI had asked me to cut down, I think I did 20 of them, all the classic American musicals that they, in their catalog. Wow. And to cut them down to an hour for performance by children in schools. So we went out and did a pilot program in a wonderful school up in Yonkers. And Annie was the first one. And my task was to take up to three hours of material, cut it down to an hour in a way that children could perform it. And so I did about 20 of those. And then Disney called me up. I had worked for them previously. Um, I went what I call music. what do you call it? Feature animation boot camp. We were taken out to Burbank, given an office with a piano in it. You know, it was fantastic. Wow. And we uh, did an adaptation of a story about dragons. And we were all set to go, go, go. And then then the Lion King exploded. And they never went back to theater writers again. Um, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But remember, <laughs> then Phil Collins, then suddenly it was pop stars were writing all the animated feature musicals. Yeah. They were off of the composer-lyricist teams. And after The Lion King, I understand why. So, um, so. but then they did call me back and said, would you cut Aladdin and Hercules down for us for an hour? And so it is challenging. Do you know? You have to sustain the story. You've got to get the hit tunes in there. And you got to do it in 50 minutes for children. So, um, But, you know, writing for children is the same as adults. They're actors. They're storytellers. They're giving it their all. And it's amazing what they can do. Um, I'll never forget the first time we saw the Annie done, this little teeny girl with a wig on her head, you know, came out and she did all the dialogue. It was on a bed, an orchestral track, you know, so it all had to be timed perfectly. And Mm -hmm. she tucked in all of her little orphans and said all of her dialogue. And then she went over and perched on the side of this little cot and a spotlight found her, and everything went away. And she opened her mouth and sang on pitch beautifully and not a dry eye in the house. I'm telling you, (laughs) you know, just nailed it. So, but you know, kids, they fly on their imaginations. She did not need to be told how to stay in the moment. You know, she was the moment and they work. Incredible. They work. I took my friend Faith Prince up to see the next year, um, guys and dolls. And she had just won the Tony for it. And the kid who came out to do sky Masterson was about three feet tall. And, she started crying the instant he opened his mouth to sing. And she said, that's the best Sky Masterson I've ever seen. Oh. You know, total confidence.
1: Yeah. The ignorance of, of youth working yeah. for them.
2: It's the lack of fear that you learn as you get older. I think so. And just really being lost in the story and serving the story, which, you know, they do. But that's what they do spontaneously. I
1: think kids don't realize how hard what they're doing actually is. And I've seen this a lot in dance and in ballet. And the prodigies that sort of come out of classical ballet, they don't quite understand how miraculous what they're getting their little bodies to do is. And then as they get older, sometimes the fear creeps in because they know it's incredibly incredibly difficult and it's interesting to watch the psychological effects of that
2: knowledge sort of wreak havoc on an artist sure well this is the special plight of performing artists right because they have to do it now and it's brutalizing you know um you know to have to summon it and make it happen and in a tradition of excellence and with a knowledgeable audience and It could be overwhelming. Mm. It could drive one to drink or recreational drugs. (laughs) Which has never (laughs) happened before. (laughs) Never. Uh, I'd like to
1: transition over to to the cabaret now. Speaking of drinking and drugs. um, Yeah. You have written songs, acts, and cabaret material for the late musical theater star Barbara Cook. What's it like writing material for an established
2: star? Is it limiting, exciting, or both? Oh, it's all of that. I mean, I, it, I loved working with Barbara. I mean, it's it's the voice, you know, she Mm -hmm. was astonishing and she got to be a really close friend of mine. So I I think we worked together certainly across 25 years, maybe 30 years. And it was always a joy. She, you know, someone like Barbara, that was a brand before we even threw that, those terms around, you know, (laughs) she was not going to sing a note or say a syllable that wasn't on brand for Miss Cook, as she called her, um, (laughs) Barbara was my friend, but Miss Cook is who we wrote for, you know, so it was thrilling always to. Well, first, funny things were, you know, we, she would have these endless legal pads of song titles. Yeah. And she would go through them and she'd say, you don't know that one. And I'd say no. And then she would sing like any normal human being would sing just sort of singing along like this, you know, not, not in her voice. I had not a clue what the hell that song could have been like or, or what it would be. And then I'd get this look on my face, like, that's not singing. What are you doing? And then, then she would drop in and do it. Right. And then I go, Oh yeah, you should sing that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, in dance,
2: we call that marking. I don't know. Well, of course. Yeah. But this was not even marking. This was like someone Kind of singing happy birthday or something. Do you know? She, it was a sketch. Yeah. It wasn't even marking. And But then when she would stroke the instrument, you know, you would be <laughs> weeping at her dining room table. But uh, no, she was great. But no, writing for her was hilarious because I'll tell you one. This is what it was like. She was going to open at the Metropolitan Opera. And she had it in her mind that she was going to begin with, if my friends could see me now from sweet charity. Mm. So she said, honey, what do you think of this? It'll, it'll be a picture of my second grade class with a spotlight on me warming up on me in the third, you know, first row, second kid from the left. And then I'll come on and while that's up, I'll sing, if my friends could see me now. And then I'm going to introduce one of my classmates who's still alive. Who's going to, I'm flying her up to see it. I said, well, you know, that'll be absolutely charming. She said, great. Now go ahead, go away and write me new lyrics to If My Friends Could See Me Now. So, of course, I did. Wrote choruses and choruses and choruses. Mm. And this this was the meeting. So I brought it in, and she goes, hmm, If My Friends Could See Me Now. That's very good, Jim. That's excellent. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So she's messing with you. Yeah. Then she read the second line, which was also the original lyric. Then she read the third one. and She goes, hmm, let's think about that one. (laughs) But in the end, uh, I did write it for her and it was really, really fun. And I got some zingers in there. But uh, she I describe it this way. You bring in a jewel box and these ladies who know exactly what they want. Start putting on earrings, right? Yeah. They start putting on bracelets and necklaces. And then they finally go, I'll take that, 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 and that. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You offer. I thought I was writing for her. I was offering for her. <laughs> but it was thrilling. Do you know, it's fun. And of course you want, uh, you want to serve that and you want it to be seamless for her on stage. And and then there were really special times when deep into a run, when I think, you know, this thing about being the performer she then had to go up and sell that um, at advancing years as well. And the voice, while changing, I loved the voice as it changed. But, you know, I know there were some pyrotechnical things that she wished she could still do mm. um, that weren't happening. But it never really mattered because her connection to the audience was so complete. But occasionally she would call me up and say, will you come knock on my door at half hour? Um, I just want to sit with you for a minute. And then will you walk me to the stage? Mm. And And I understood that, Do you know. It's lonely up there, James Whiteside.
1: It really is. I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> no.
2: Uh, what did her friendship mean to you? Encouragement, um, validation, trust, and just a hell of a lot of fun. Because it was great <laughs> to fly off to London with her and yeah. stay at the Savoy and eat mashed potatoes after the show in the suite and, you know, and just laugh. Because Barbara was fun and had a great sense of humor, very quick mind. And also her musical director, Wally Harper, who was key to all of this, because I did a couple of acts for other artists with Wally. And then Barbara was always rehearsing before or after at Wally's studio. And eventually she started asking me to listen to things. And then she asked me to write a few things. Mm-hmm. And and that's how it happened. It was, it was a friendship. Yeah. Sounds incredibly yeah. organic. It was. Yeah. And super exciting and quick. You know, really quick. Like decision on the moment. Are we going to use this or not? I like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So of course. I mean, I know this is very true about myself, but why do you think gay men are so drawn to powerful
2: women in show business and powerful women in general? Well, of course, I've thought about this. I think there's a central metaphor of a woman on stage in the light, either about to sing or in the process of singing, That's different than a man on stage in the light for me. And I think it's because I'm going to say society, whatever the hell that means. We give permission to women to be emotional in ways that we often don't give to men, I think. Hmm. And there are women who take that sort of permission or that mandate and grow by it. And I think they instruct us in the proper uses of emotion as a means of connecting with people, Hmm. giving, I think we learn so much from those performers. Well, ballet certainly too, right? Even though they're not using their voices. The performing arts is one place that allows women as much power as men. And maybe that's what we're responding to. Mm. Does that make sense? It absolutely
1: does. And I, you know, in that sort of freedom of expression, I can't quite figure out for myself why, I don't know, perhaps it's because... I relate more to a feminine expression of emotion Mm -hmm. and I see, I see beauty in women much faster than I see beauty in men. And um, frankly, I just find it a lot more interesting to watch a woman
2: on stage ever. I I think I do too. And I almost all the central characters I write in plays of my own are women. Mm. And I don't know if that's the province of gay men. I don't know. I don't know what that's about, but I do know that the, the performers that have been most instructive to me are, have been women, not in, in the main, women who can use make their lived experience palpable in a gesture, in a line of music, um, in just the way their voice is stroked by the music. There's an authenticity that comes through, and I, I know that's what we pay for. We pay to see them um, walking shoulder to shoulder with us through the great challenges. And if it doesn't destroy them, (laughs) the ability to replicate that, do you know on demand, which involves another technique, but do you know, Barbara Cook's voice? I would often say to her, Barbara, I can actually see the music in the air when you sing it. And she would say, you're out of your mind. But, um, I could. Do you know what I'm saying? I you do. must see that. too, There's a very, very famous George Balanchine quote that goes,
1: see the music, hear the dance. And I exactly. think that's very beautiful. And it's, of course, overused everywhere. But, um, yeah. you know, fundamentally, it's gorgeous. Uh, speaking of of stars and writing and the cabaret, is there a living star you'd love to write a cabaret
2: act for? Oh, that's a good one. Who would that be? Well, I'm going to be terrible on... Well, for yeah, Emma Thompson. Mm. (laughs) If she would ever do cabaret. Just devastatingly talented human being. My God. I agree. In addition to the the intelligence, there's just nothing I don't... I think there's nothing she couldn't do. So she would be at the top of my list. And, um, you know, why not start high? Um, (laughs) And you do know... Just some of those bigger people that you could bring down into cabaret size, like that incredible actress, Janet McTeer. Do you know? No, I, I like don't know these her. Big... Oh, she's wonderful. She won a Tony for a doll's house. She's about six foot two. And she convinced you she was three feet tall at the beginning and 19 feet tall at the end. Wow. You know? Incredible. Um, I like those big bravura people in small spaces. Yeah. I'd like to
1: play a little game with you for just a few okay. minutes here. Um, have you ever
2: heard of either or? No, but I, should I lie and say yes? No, don't no, lie. No, that'll buy me time. Okay. <laughs> I'm never going to Okay. <clears throat> you
1: have to choose one of the following things oh, I, yeah, I yeah. describe. All right. So either or, Liza Minnelli, dog. or, <laughs> wait, what? I was saying cat or dog, oh. vanilla or chocolate. <laughs> oh, I'm warming up. God. I'm warming up. Um, All right. Well, it's, gonna, it's about to get... Um, you know, pretty showbiz in here. You ready? Mm -hmm. All right. Liza or Barbara? Ooh, that's the killer. And that's Streisand, by the way. Yeah, of course. Oh, I'm going to go Liza. You and me both, sis. She (laughs) gives. She's a giver. Yeah. All right. Italy or France? Italy. And and why is that?
2: It just... Well, because France is a derivative of Italy. There, I've said it out loud. (laughs) And Italy is the most... Beautiful Western culture with the most beautiful everything. Just (laughs) an intact spinal column. Italy all the way. No chiropractor
1: necessary. No. Oh, my God. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for for joining me today on Front Row. And uh, do you have anything you'd like to plug currently?
2: No, I don't. Um, No, I'm not going to plug. I'm just going to say thank you to you. And uh, I appreciated this. I hope it was you know, good for you and your listeners. And it was a pure joy.
1: Thank you, Jim. And until next time on Front Row. <laughs> Bye-bye. Wow, be well. Bye-bye. Don't forget to subscribe and review this podcast. And if you like it, share it with your friends or on social media. You can follow me on all social platforms by searching James Whiteside. My book, Center Center, a funny, sexy, sad, almost memoir, is available everywhere in all formats. Front Row uses music from the song A-flat by Black Violin. Check out the show notes on jamesbwhiteside.com for exclusive video and audio from this podcast.